You're listening to the Outdoor Photography Podcast, episode 13. Today, we are sitting down with Colorado-based nature photographer, Sarah Marino, to talk about her journey into photography, her approach to composition, using visual design principles to create compelling images, the importance of slowing down and connecting with the scene, and so much more. So stay tuned. Hi, I'm Brenda Petrella, the creator of Outdoor Photography School. Join me as I sit down with top landscape and nature photographers and outdoor industry experts to chat about creativity, composition, photography tips and techniques, essential gear, safety in the outdoors, respect for nature, and so much more. Tune in every week to learn how to create compelling and impactful images while exploring and enjoying the natural world. Welcome to the Outdoor Photography Podcast. Do you like to create images that depict the landscape in a natural way rather than using post-processing techniques to create a whole new scene that didn't exist at the time of capture? If so, then the Natural Landscape Photography Awards is a competition you might want to check out, and it is now open for entries until September 1st. There is even a youth category, so if you know of any young photographers who might be interested, please pass along the information. You can learn more about their submission requirements and what post-processing methods are accepted and other important information at naturallandscapeawards.com. And they are kindly offering you as a listener of the podcast 15% off your entry fee when you use the discount code OPS15 for Outdoor Photography School 15 at checkout. So again, for 15% off your submission to the Natural Landscape Photography Awards, enter the code OPS15 at checkout and best of luck. Hey, everybody, Brenda Petrella here, here to help you create better images and reconnect with nature. I am especially excited to bring you today's guest, Sarah Marino, because I have been a longtime fan of her work and how she's able to capture the finer details of nature. So before we dive in, let me give you a brief background on Sarah. Trained in both business administration and public administration, Sarah worked for many years in Colorado's vibrant nonprofit sector as a leadership and strategy consultant. As a very accomplished nature photographer, photography educator, and writer, Sarah was fortunate enough to recently transition to a full-time career focused on photography and her passion for the natural world. She now splits her time between her home in southwestern Colorado and nomadic traveling, often in an Airstream RV trailer. Sarah is an exceptional photography teacher and provides photo education through speaking engagements, photography workshops, coaching, ebooks, and video tutorials. Her approach to teaching emphasizes personal expression, seeing opportunities in any landscape, finding joy in photographing nature's small scenes, and a slow style of photography focused on exploration and deeply connecting with nature. Her writing and photography have been published in numerous outlets, including On Landscape, Digital Photo Magazine, Landscape Photography Magazine, Luminous Landscape, Nature Photographers Network, Outdoor Photography Guide, and many others. Lastly, Sarah is a co-founder of the Nature First Photography Alliance and promotes the conservation and stewardship of wild places through her photography and teaching. And so without further ado, please enjoy my wide-ranging conversation with Sarah Marino. Sarah, welcome to the Outdoor Photography Podcast. Thank you so much for being here today. I'm really excited to connect with you. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It'll be great to have this conversation today. Yeah. So I already gave the listeners uh, a little bio of you in the introduction, but for those listeners who are brand new to your work, I was wondering if you could give us sort of your origin story, you know, like who is Sarah, where are you from, and how did you get inspired to delve into nature photography? Yeah. uh, So my origin story is that I've always lived in Colorado. I grew up in the Denver metro area, but I now live in a very small town of about 900 people in southwestern Colorado. So that was a big shift. And that was in part because of photography. Like I just wanted to be closer to things that I love. Uh, So my career started out in the nonprofit sector where I worked for nonprofit organizations directly. And then I moved into doing management and leadership consulting and working with foundations. 
And as part of that process, I decided I wanted to be a CEO. And to be a CEO, you need a master's degree. So I was working full-time in a super stressful job. I was going to graduate school full-time and was in an unhappy marriage. So you combine all three of those things and it was just super stressful. Like my life was way too complicated and it felt like I had no place, like no outlet whatsoever. So I started hiking more and then I started bringing along a camera and that was really the only time in my life I ever felt a sense of calm. Like at that moment and being in school, having the stressful job, like this time with my camera is really the only time I'm living in the present and actually enjoying my life. So the more that I pursued photography, the more it became the sole focus of my time, really. So I finished my master's degree and decided at that point that I was probably ready to go out on my own. So I started my own consulting business, which I had for eight or nine years. And that enabled me to have a much more flexible schedule. So I was able to start traveling a lot more. I got a divorce, married another landscape photographer a few years later. And we have created a life where we can live in a place we love. We can work remotely pretty much anywhere. Uh, We can pursue photography together. So just overall, like having the realization that I think I want to be a CEO of an organization or in a a high level leadership position, but I'm actually not happy in this situation. So just being much more intentional about creating this life, an intentional, intentionally designed life that right now centers very much around being in nature and pursuing photography, both as a passion and as a career. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. So it sounds like you're largely a self-taught photographer. Then you were sort of learning as you go. Yeah, I would say self-taught in the sense that I didn't go to an academic program or anything like that. So uh, I took three workshops when I was first getting started, mostly because I had no experience whatsoever traveling on my own. Like I had never gone on a hike by myself at the point where I was starting to get more interested in photography. So that was the way that I felt safe at that point. And those workshops, one of the first one was totally transformational. Because the leader was very adventurous and he he was much more of a risk taker than anybody that I'd ever been around. Um, just very creative. So being around him was super inspirational. And um, I think just put me on a different path at that point. Yeah. Uh, but in terms of the photography education side, it was... I took those couple of workshops and then otherwise it was just reading a lot of books. Uh, The Nature Photographers Network was the place to hang out at that time. So I learned so much from the people that were on NPN and just essentially learning, connecting with people online, reading as many books as possible and spending as much time in the field as I could just learning, learning, learning. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's the best way, right? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Um, So I understand you're a full-time photographer now uh, as of last year is that right right before the pandemic January 2020 which was the worst timing possible (laughs) yeah Yeah, like I closed Uh down my consulting business in 20 in December of 2019 feeling pretty ambivalent about it like because I had one great client who I had worked with for years at that point and um I just like it's time it's time to do this. I had a full schedule of workshops, full schedule of conference talks, like this very planned out business plan. And then March happened and every, except for one, every single thing was canceled. <laughs> so amazing. Ugh. So now do you have some hope now for 2021 with the vaccine being out? And, you know, do you think does 2021 look like it'll be different than 2020 for you? Well, actually, I feel like 2020 turned around and was actually a good year and that it allowed some space for some reflection about what I actually want my business to look like. Yeah, because I think so many people that go into nature photography as a full time business, they think like, well, the model is teaching a full set of workshops or the model is this or that. Um, And so I was following the workshop model because I like teaching. I like traveling. Seems like a good combination. Well, it it actually isn't where I find the most joy and what I think I'm best at. So the pandemic was, I like, I had the big dive, like where March and April were really, really hard. 
And then that kind of turned around in May when I started trying some new things like doing online education, um, participating in an online conference, meeting some different people, trying webinars. Uh, I wrote a new ebook. So just trying new things, doing more video. And I feel like that really was an opportunity to say this, (laughs) this is a bad situation, but I, in my consulting practice, all I ever talked about was you need to be adaptable and you need to build that capacity. So I need to listen to my own advice and just try to adapt to a new reality. And now I feel like I actually have a business model that will make me a lot happier in the long term. That's great. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Especially because, um, you know, it sounds like you came from a very high stress career background. I've heard you refer to yourself as a workaholic. Yeah. <laughs> I can identify with that as well. And, and, and so now like taking photography on as the primary career path, I would worry for myself that it would then become sort of that stress in my life rather than the thing that gave me, you know, respite. So it sounds like you've been able to work out how it would look ideal in your world to keep that balance going. Yeah, that's a that's a daily task, right? Like, how do I not become the person I used to be? Right. <laughs> Again, just in a different line of work where I'm right. supposed to be building different habits and doing different things. Like, so it's it's a constant. Like Ron, my husband, who's also a nature photographer, uh, and he has a full time job, but we still photograph together all the time. Like, we're const- He's constantly reminding me, like, you don't have to say yes to everything. If mm-hmm. our goal is to have a more open schedule, then saying no to some things is really important. Yeah. So it's just that constant, like constantly figuring out where's the best use of my time and being willing to just say no to things. Because I, like you said, the tendency to be a workaholic or to fill my schedule as full as possible. Right. Not miss an opportunity. Right. So. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because often when when you say no to something, you don't really know the value of that until after the fact. <laughs> You know, when you're like, oh, I had that time and that was good. Now I'm grateful for that rather than beforehand when you're trying to make the decision about saying no, it feels more anxiety producing, at least for me to be like, well, I'm going to say no, because what if that's the wrong decision? Uh, but usually after the fact, it's like, oh, I'm so glad I did that. <laughs> I'm so glad yeah. I said no to that. <laughs> I'm just trying to treat myself more like one of my former clients. Like I used to do business planning and strategic or strategy development for nonprofits and foundations. So I have all the skills I need. I did executive coaching too. So I have all the skills I need. I just have never applied them to myself. So I'm trying to do that much more this year. Like the idea of like, if these are my five priorities and I screen every decision through that list of priorities, like that's something I told clients to do. I need to start doing that myself. So I, I said no to two things yesterday and it felt good. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. That's great. So I understand that in a non uh, global pandemic times that that you and Ron spend a good chunk of the year living a semi nomadic lifestyle in an airstream with your two cats. Um, Oh, I'm sorry. (laughs) <laughs> that was a while ago. I better update whatever, wherever you found that. <laughs> I saw, I saw a picture of two cats. So yeah, <laughs> yeah I'm sorry about that. Um, so what has living on the road enabled you to do and how has that influenced your photography? Yeah, I think that that experience has been the single most transformational thing with regard to my own photography. Well, I'd say that and one other thing that I could talk about too. Uh, but the first, so the first thing is that When Ron and I met, our mode of travel was very much go to a place, look at the weather. If that, if the weather looks good, stay. If the weather looks slightly more promising somewhere else, immediately move on. Uh, So it would mean that we would spend a day in Zion National Park, and then we would drive to Death Valley and spend a day there and maybe drive to a different mountain range, spend a day there, maybe back to Zion if it looked like the weather was getting better there. So it's just constantly moving and uh, like the chasing the light, chasing the weather, the thing that you're told that you're supposed to do as a nature photographer. So since we have, we had two cats when we started with our Airstream, uh, we have one now she's 18 years old. Like it's not fair at all to her to be moving every day. And Ron has a work schedule that he needs to keep. So we stay places at least for one week, like in the exact same campground spot, for yeah. at least a week, often two or three weeks. 
Uh, and because as long as we have cell service, we both can work. Mm-hmm. So the ability to just stay in one place and not be chasing the weather and spend a lot more time exploring more time on foot. Like we hike so much more than we used to, uh, that all of those things trans- transformed my photography practice. And I think allowed me the space to do the kind of work that means the most to me, which is often the smaller scenes and the things that you don't immediately notice and take more time to enjoy. Yeah. So just the process of being in a single place for extended periods of time just requires a different approach to the landscape. And that I think has been fantastic for my photography practice. Yeah. Yeah. So how, how on in that light, how would you say that your um, photography has evolved over time? Uh, It sounds like you're, you're saying it's gone more towards the small scenes. And so facilitating that change in your work, do you think that has been mostly about having that time to explore more freely? Yeah, I think it's that. And also just becoming more confident in who I want to be as a photographer. So when I look at my early work, I was taking completely unrefined photographs of small scenes. Uh, They weren't necessarily successful. Like the compositions weren't refined. uh, The details weren't refined. I had problems with the technical aspects of photography. But you can tell from my early work that I was connecting with those small details. And then I started spending more time around other nature photographers. Definitely went into the idea that grand landscapes are the landscapes. When you're a landscape photographer, you're supposed to photograph grand landscapes. So I'm going to focus exclusively on grand landscapes. I think because I just didn't know who I was. I didn't know what I wanted to accomplish or what my, how I was connecting and interpreting the natural world. And then I pretty much stayed off social media for about a year. Which is the second thing I was referring to earlier. So Cole Thompson, who's a photographer here in Colorado, he talks about the idea of photographic celibacy, mm-hmm. which essentially is like shutting down all the outside influences so that you have room to find your own voice. Yeah. So I tried that for an extended period of time. And that gave me, I think that helped me find the room just and the confidence to pursue the things that I'm most interested in. Because like some of the subjects that I photograph are on the surface, completely boring and mundane, but they bring me joy and I love finding beauty and that kind of thing. So that getting to the point where I had the confidence to say, I'm proud of this and I want to share it and I want to have my name on it. That was a process. So I essentially got back to where I started, um, but now I just have more better technical skills. (laughs) essentially. (laughs) That's great. So, and I understand you do a lot of black and white photography too, which some people might not know you for as much as your small scene photography. So when you're approaching a scene, do you sort of already have it in mind that you're going to be doing a black and white? Do you approach a scene with that, you know, looking at it and taking assessments of what's going on and thinking like, this is going to make a really good black and white image, or is that something that you're playing around with more after the fact? I think it's the full continuum that you just described, like the, the idea of like, I'm out in the field and I see this scene in front of me and I know immediately that everything is here for a black and white photo. Like one of my favorite photos of mine, uh, it was brown mud tiles and a blue, blue stormy sky. And I didn't particularly like those colors in person. um, But I knew that all of the elements were there for a really dramatic and intense black and white photograph all the way to like, I'm looking through my Lightroom catalog and do something I've processed in color and then think, Oh, that would work in black and white. I'll try that too. So it's the full continuum for me. Yeah, Uh, I think the bottom line though, is that I'm getting out at times where it's also conducive to creating black and white photography. I'm not just limiting my photography to a half an hour around sunrise and sunset. I'm getting out. Like if there's crazy dramatic light in the sky uh, and it might not be conducive for color photography, I'm still getting out thinking this might be a great opportunity to eventually create a black and white photograph. Or if there's harsh light and shadows, it's just working with, I I look at light as like, there's, there's light happening right now. What can I do with it? Yeah. Instead of is this good or bad light? Right. Exactly. Yeah. There's Mm -hmm. like a, a Scandinavian saying that there's no such thing as bad weather just bad clothing. 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. exactly. <It's> just, <laughs> if, if nature photographers thought in that way, just as yeah. a general rule of practice. <laughs> right. <laughs> exactly. Um, so let's dive a little bit deeper now into creativity and composition. So I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about your creative process. You know, where do you get inspiration from and what is it that you're trying to express or reflect through your photography? Yeah, that's a that's a complicated question, isn't it? That's yes. a hard thing to answer. Um, I and I'll, I'll answer the pieces that I remember, and if I forget anything, you can pull pull some more threads out when I'm done. Yeah. Um, but I think the first thing that comes to mind in terms of inspiration is simply nature itself. Mm-hmm. That I go out into nature because I am absolutely fascinated by the natural world. So we live next to an open space with some trails and we have hiked those trails a hundred times, at least more than that, probably. And like the last walk that we did, we saw a little mount, a tiny mountain ball cactus, which is probably two inches across. It was under a sage plant. I never noticed it before. It's like, I absolutely want to get back out there with my camera. Uh, We saw the first Indian paintbrush of the season, some colorful lichen growing on the side of a rock that I had never noticed before. So it's that kind of thing of just even in places I've been a lot, seeing it in different seasons, seeing it in different light, different conditions, and feeling completely inspired by how incredible the natural world can be. So it's curiosity about the natural world and just wanting to spend more time in nature, I think that ultimately drives my photography. Yeah. And so what is it that you're trying to express through your images? That is it that connection, that that sense of awe? Uh, it, it, this is always a hard question for me because I, I photograph for myself. Yeah. So when I hear photographers talk about uh, like what they want to communicate to a viewer, that's always secondary for me. And I feel like I'm abnormal in that sense because I, I've talked to a lot of people about this and a lot of people don't seem to identify with that very much. Uh, so for me, I'm not so concerned about what I'm communicating to the people who are viewing my photographs. It's more, I think, a documentation and an expression of my experience and the things that I'm connecting with and that are important to me. Mm -hmm. Um, so I think it goes back to the idea that I mentioned a little bit earlier about seeing beauty in every situation. So if you get jaded by the incredible landscapes that exist, say in American national parks, um, and unless you have perfect light over a perfect scene, then you're and you're disappointed. Um, like you might not be seeing, you might be missing out on some of the beauty that nature holds in just those more subtle moments or in more mundane scenes. And I want to see that full continuum. I want to experience that full continuum and then communicate that through my photography. Yeah. And I think also just help people see things in the natural world that they might not have ex- not might not have noticed themselves before. And then like seeing my work might encourage them to experience nature in a different way. Yeah. Uh, Like learning more about like picking up a book on flowers or a book on plants or learning more about how lichen forms that people might see my photos and think I've never thought about that before. So maybe I too want to learn more about that subject or about that, that place. Yeah. So sparking curiosity in others as well. Yeah, exactly. I think that definitely comes through in your images for sure. So, you know, you say that it's a hard question about what you're expressing in your photography. I think that that is what you're expressing is that that um, sense of wonder that you have because you're drawing attention to these details that often go missed by so many people. And it's not just the detail, but it's the beauty of that, like how you're composing it, how you're using color in contrast and things like that in very specific ways, I feel like bring, bring that out even more so than just is just a pretty flower. You know, you're like (laughs) focusing in on the geometry of the flower and all of these different parts of it that sometimes we can't even observe without a camera. Yeah. Yeah. That's very true. Like without shallow depth of field, um, some of the ways that I interpret plants, like you don't see with your like even if you put a flower like right up to your eye and you were looking at it really closely, you still wouldn't see it in the same way that you can render it with some camera equipment. Yeah. Yeah. Which is very cool. So when you're connecting with the scene, is there anything that's sort of like going through your head? Like what are you looking for in when you're trying to become, you know, more observant and, and what are you trying to pay attention to when you're looking for compositions? Well, I think the the first thing is that I never, 
unless I have an idea that I'm, I'm revisiting a place because I want to try an idea again, if I'm arriving somewhere for photography, I try not to have a lot of ideas in mind to begin with, because then, then I'm connecting with preconceptions instead of connecting with what's in front of me. Right. So that's, yeah. I think the first thing is that I arrive without a plan. We, our only plan is generally like, we're going to hike this far and this is our goal, but who knows how long it will take? Who knows what we'll see along the way, where we'll stop, if we'll stop, if we won't stop. Uh, so I think Ron and I are very similar in that sense of where we really want to see what's, what's in front of us before we decide to do anything with our cameras. Um, yeah. I think the, the things that I'm looking for. So if I'm walking down a trail, the, some of the things that I'm looking for are going to be interesting lighting. So is there something interesting happening with uh, the light that's falling on the landscape or something interesting happening with the clouds. Or I know that in an hour, it seems like clouds are moving this direction and it could be interesting. So looking at what's happening with the light and the weather and not just for the grand landscape, but also for some much smaller scenes. Uh, I'm always looking for patterns and repetition because I think that's one of the places that I find the most joy in nature mm -hmm. is finding little interesting subjects that, uh, often boil down to a pattern like that there I'm organizing the massive chaos around me by finding order in a tiny scene in nature. So that's something I'm constantly looking for. And then just observing, trying to steam much more deeply. So like we were just in Death Valley National Park and we hiked one of the peak trails uh, to Wild Rose Peak, which is one of the only real established trails in the park. Uh, and you, Death Valley itself is below sea level in many parts of the parts of parts of it. And you think of it as being salt playas and um, badlands, sand dunes, those kinds of things. So harsh desert environment. But once you get up at a higher elevation, then you're in woodlands. So mm -hmm. it's like the wonder of being in Death Valley, a place that's thought of as being very desolate and harsh. And you're surrounded by pinyon pines and uh, junipers, buckwheat, wild, all sorts of buckwheat, wildflowers, um, just all these different, these plant communities that you don't expect in a place like Death Valley. There were all sorts of super colorful rocks, interesting, um, like bark on trees, pine cones and their pine needles. So these are all things that you might not necessarily expect in a place like Death Valley. But the, so the experience for me of walking along a trail like that is just trying to see the place much more deeply and have a yeah. greater understanding of this ecosystem that I might not have ever expected. So that's mm -hmm. the kind of process that I usually go through whenever I visit a place of, of just trying to, trying to see it with fresh eyes and then seeing more deeply than what's most obvious. Cause once you yeah. get up to the top of the peak, you can see all the way, you can see a couple mountain ranges in one direction. You can see death Valley below so that's, you have this massive vista in front of you, but what about all the little details that tell you much more about that ecosystem along the way? So I want yeah. to see both essentially. Yeah. yeah that was that a very long sense. answer, but that's, no, that's, that's how I work. That's how my mind works when I'm out in a place like that. Yeah. Yeah. Do you ever work with like a composition card or anything like that? Um, no, I do not. I work yeah. with my viewfinder sometimes. Okay. Yeah. I've started to, um, use one every once in a while. And I do find it to be helpful to kind of like just get rid of those distractions more so than I know some people use their phone and, you know, take test shots that way. And for some reason, I just, that doesn't resonate with me as much as like really just having a rectangle to play with. <laughs> do you have a one that's one particular size or do you have some that are differently sized or what, how has it been? What are you doing? It's, it's one size. It's a two by three aspect ratio. And then it's about like that big with a hole I cut out of mm -hmm. the middle. And then if you use your arm to be telephoto or wide angle. So it's not exact, obviously, but it's, it's helpful to just be like, Oh yeah, I think there's something here. I should stop here for a little while and play versus like, yeah, I'm just not feeling it. You know, I'm not seeing something. So yeah, I was just curious if you ever used that. I think it, I maybe should, because I have, I think I'm decent at seeing the wide angle scenes. And then I'm incredibly good at seeing telephoto scenes and macro subjects, but that 
those the, the wider intimate landscapes are something that I don't see as naturally. So having something like the composition card could definitely help. Yeah. Well, I have templates. I can send you one. <laughs> My problem is it would be destroyed in an afternoon unless it was yeah. made of something very durable. Right. Exactly. That is the downside. <laughs> so how, how would you define composition? So I think so I have a technical de- definition, which I always use in my classes, which is thinking about the arrangement and flow of the things that are organized within the four borders of your photographic frame. So I think that's kind of a technical decision. I think the the more philosophical definition, I think, would be that it's communicating how you see the world through mm-hmm. your photography. So it's taking this grand expanse in front of you and distilling it down into the, the arrangement and the, the subject that you think is the most important thing in front of you. And that then you use that to communicate your interpretation to the world. So yeah. uh, I think the composition piece is the most, so if light is one of the most important elements. We have very little control over light we can select our subjects. So that would be the first kind of level of personal interaction with the landscape. And then the deepest level would be then taking that subject and choosing how you're arranging it, what you're including and what you're excluding. Uh, And that tells your viewers so much about how you see the world, like what was important to you, what you wanted to highlight through your composition. Are you more, do you like embracing chaos? Or are you like me and you want to simplify and order things as much as possible? Uh, so it tells you a lot about like what's important to the photographer and right. how they see the world. So it's that translation yeah. piece, I think, that that's so essential to communicating a personal vision. Yeah, absolutely. Totally agree with that. Um, so people get their style mm-hmm. sort of known for a certain style, I think, too. Uh, so what are your thoughts on the the rules of composition? Uh, <laughs> so my thoughts in general about the word role associated with a creative pursuit is that it is a hugely problematic place yeah. to start. So if I'm, I'm currently working on a talk that is all about mindset and it's all about how the field of photography puts all of these starts with all of these limiting ideas. So every single time you turn around, you're hearing some other limiting idea about how you should do nature photography. And the rule of thirds is one of the first or the rules of composition are some of the first things that I think most photographers hear. Um, I've, I've been communicating with a couple of different women who have participated in some of my classes over the last year. And they both have said like, I wish I had never learned these ideas because I can't get them out of my mind. Mm. So generally, I think it's much more helpful to think about principles of visual design Mm -hmm. and then learning those principles. You can then apply them in a way that, that resonates with how you see the world. Um, And they're, they're flexible ideas that you can apply to all sorts of different scenes in front of you, uh, rather than ha- having these rules in your mind of like, you should always use leading lines. Uh, you're, you have to progress from a foreground to a midground to a background. The most interesting things should be placed on the third, like right. the, having all those ideas in your mind, then means that you're before you even start consciously thinking about a composition. I think your mind starts searching for those things and closes down opportunities. So I think it's more helpful to think about general principles of design. Like I, I really think graphic, a graphic design textbook is a more helpful compositional resource than many of the compositional tools available for photographers, especially like the 10 best tips for concept or concert uh, composition for nature photographers, like articles that you find on the internet. Well, cracks, <laughs> what cracks me up is that it's like if you do a Google search, it's like 21, you know, compositional rules, 10, 9, 12, 16. Like no one seems to agree on how many numbers <laughs> of rules there are of composition. And so it's like, is, are there really these like structures that we need to be paying attention to? Or, And I think I agree. Like, I think that um, they can be very limiting. I think they can be helpful in that, like, they are effective under certain conditions, you know, like if the composition calls for it, then great use the rule of thirds. But if it doesn't, 
you don't have to use it, you know? And so I, I feel like it has to come with, what is it that you're trying to, uh, like, what's the story of the image that you're trying to express and then use the tool that works for that best, you know, whether that's to put the subject in the middle or on a third or on a fifth or not using leading lines, but using contrast in an interesting way or, or something like that, you know? So yeah, I agree. When I was first learning photography, it was, I found it to be really frustrating to be like, here are all the rules now break the rules. And it was like, well, that's not helpful. Like yeah. I don't know what it even <laughs> means to break the rules. <laughs> exactly. I totally agree. <laughs> I felt like it would be more helpful just as a field. If we, if photography educators said like, here are 10 principles of composition. And right. some ideas that can be helpful. So one of the things that I find to be most helpful when working with beginners is, so you have a landscape in front of you. So let's say you have a foreground full of wildflowers, and then you have some interesting hills, and then some beautiful big peaks and some interesting weather. So those are the things that draw us as photographers to the natural world, because like, this is an incredibly beautiful scene. I'm, I feel inspired, full of awe. So we're drawn by the flowers, mountains, hills, but those are also shapes and lines and textures uh, and thinking about like the, the, how do I organize these wildflowers so that they're balanced and that they flow into the scene? Like, I think that's a more helpful idea of seeing the wildflowers as abstract shapes and patterns and lines um, yeah. is a lot more helpful than saying like, you should have your most prominent foreground plant on a third. Because that's right. really arbitrary right. versus being able to see your scene abstractly. That's something that yeah. you can apply in every single situation uh, and then come up with a composition that's maybe a little bit less formulaic. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I think it gets back to, too, like what our brains, how our brains are working to make sense of all this chaotic information anyway. You know, like what is our brain doing to organize this information? I think starts to get into that graphic design world that you were talking about, like what, what principles graphic designers use are based largely on how our brains perceive information and like being drawn to light over dark and, you know, warm over cool and, you know, things like that. And being familiar with that helps can help a lot with, with composition. Yeah. So learning those yeah. principles and those ideas of just, yeah. of just basic visual design, I think is a, a often a really good place to start instead of yeah. these rules that are, like I said before, formulaic. Yeah, absolutely. So that sort of brings us into your 11 composition lessons ebook, uh, which I purchased in love. And I mm -hmm. highly recommend that people check it out. Uh, it's super packed with information and very informative. Um, and one of the things that you discuss in the book is this idea of using structure or scaffolding as one of these visual design principles. Um, so I was wondering if you could explain a little bit more about what you mean by structure and um, how would you identify that in a small scene? Yeah, absolutely. And I feel like that's one. Now that I've taught that some of those lessons more, I wish I had a chapter just on structure because I do think it's an incredibly helpful concept. And thank you for your kind words about that, that ebook and the video course. Yeah. I really appreciate it. Sure. Um, so I think of the idea of structure as, or, or this is, I'll start a little earlier. This is how I just define structure to people who have never heard this term or have never used this concept before. So let's say that you have a scene in front of you. If you were to take out a piece of paper and a pencil, what would be the first lines that you would sketch? Like the major lines of the scene. So let's say we had an arrangement of trees in front of us, say 15 aspen trees that were arranged in a certain way. You would probably sketch the direction and the repetition, the arrangement of those aspen trees. Um, mm -hmm. So by looking at those very first lines that you would put down on a piece of paper, that I see as the structure of your scene. And by looking then at those immediate first lines, you can see the basic scaffolding of your composition and then maybe identify that these things work well or these things don't work as well. Uh, so that's how I think about it uh, for my, myself. And I almost always try to do something like this, like as a snap judgment when I'm photographing in the field. Um, yeah. So if I'm working on say, a small scene of something with a pattern, the structure would be those the, the repetition of the pattern. But let's say we had one quadrant 
of the scene where there was an empty space. So that initial sketch would show you that one of your quadrants feels empty. And if your goal is to have repetition throughout your frame, then that tells you that maybe a reorientation could be helpful. Uh, right. Versus if you want to highlight one central thing, then the, by sketching out a, a quick sketch of your scene, that would tell you, well, the, the placement actually works or it doesn't. So that's, those are some ways that I use that idea in my own. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. So do you actually sketch or are you doing that more mentally? I'm doing it more mentally. Um, but I, I should try sketching some of my photos. It'd be interesting to see how it works with actually a piece of paper. But I, I find the most helpful thing about doing something like this is you start seeing the weaknesses of your composition pretty quickly. Like you'll yeah. realize that I have a foreground and I have a background and there's nothing in the middle for a wide yeah. scene, or there's something that actually eliminates the flow from the foreground to the background or with a small scene, you'll realize that, uh, one, it feels unbalanced. It's either top heavy or bottom heavy. There's more on the right than there is on the left. There's this empty space. Uh, I could move around and eliminate some of those problems. So it's just really distilling composition down to those core elements and seeing how they work with one another by stripping away all of the stuff that you love about the scene, like that these trees are so colorful and beautiful, or these wildflowers are amazing. You strip away those details and instead look at the core uh, structure of yeah. your composition and can, I think, sometimes see it more clearly. Yeah. Really interesting. It's like the, the skeleton of the, yeah. the bones. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Cool. Thank you for explaining that. Um, so like you, I'm a member of the Nature First Photography Alliance, and you're actually one of the founding members of the Nature First Alliance, along with Matt Payne, who was in our, our first episode. So anyone who's listening who wants to hear more about the, the origins of the Nature First Alliance, you know, be sure to check out that episode. Um, and one of the core values that I try to convey through Outdoor Photography School is the importance of respecting and connecting with nature not and not just seeing it as a commodity for consumption. So I was wondering if you could share your thoughts and perspective on the importance of being ethical when photographing nature and, and maybe give us some ideas about what does that mean and what does it look like out in the field or when we're sharing our images? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I think the nature first movement has evolved out of how fast the nature photography world has changed. Because when when I started doing this 10 or 11 years ago, it was, you wouldn't see more than a couple of photographers at even the most popular locations. And now you can go to certain spots and it's it, it, from people with cell phones all the way to professional cameras where there are 50 people, hundreds of people, more uh, national parks are starting to put restrictions on like like Zion National Park is a great example that one of the main areas that people used to photograph from is the bridge across the Virgin River. Uh, and they've closed that down. You aren't allowed to take photographs from it anymore because it was creating a hazard. People aren't really allowed to use tripods on workshops in many circumstances in that park wow. now. So it's just, the world is just a different place. Uh, like from this first time we visited Iceland to the last time we were there, just, you can see the impact of photography and one yeah. of the most personal experiences that, that I had that really changed my thinking um, is that we had written, we've written two location guides, one for Death Valley National Park and one for Iceland. And it, I see this as the thing I would most love to do. It combines all of my skills perfectly. Uh, I love the research. I love the writing, feeling like I'm helping people, combining with my photography. Like it's, I absolutely love the process of writing these. But when we went to Iceland uh, after we had published our a couple of years after we had published our guide. And one of the places we had included was this little area of tarns uh, that were surrounded by beautiful, like small birch trees and other little bushes. Um, and it was off the beaten path. So it's not a place you would go without knowing that you might want to like without having information about it. Yeah. So um I think we're probably the first people that published any information about that little spot. And we went back 
And you could tell that the traffic there was destroying what we loved about it in the first place. So that was the big revelation that we've sold quite a few copies of this ebook. This information is, has gone beyond our ebook as well. And people are sharing it in other ways. And this location is now a thing. And I'm probably in some ways, very personally responsible for that situation because I was one of the first people to ever make it a well, a known location. Yeah. Um, and that was like <laughs> that, that realization was really problematic. Like, yeah. first of all, I need to immediately delete this from this ebook. It's too sensitive people. You could walk on the rocks, but people are choosing not to walk on the rocks. They're just walking across the moss and you can see it being degraded. So having that kind of super personal experience was the realization that like, I can feel like I'm being helpful and helping people have a better trip, but I have no control over how people use the information that I'm sharing. So that, that experience was pretty much a 180 degree turn for how I think about my role with nature photography and how I share information. So uh, we totally revised both of our eBooks, took out all sensitive locations, uh, and I personally don't share location information beyond a region anymore and mm-hmm. feel like just generally, especially influencers, influencers need to think about how far their information is going to travel. I, right. I've went through all the rationalizations myself and there's a good argument against every single one of them. Uh, like only a few people will see my post or, um, it, somebody else, if I don't share the information, somebody else will share it. Well, maybe that's not necessarily true. Um, right. That if people, I feel like people are more respectful of a place if they've had some role in, in discovering it on their own. Yeah. Um, so like it, not every place needs to be documented fully on the internet. People don't have a right to that information necessarily. Um, and we just need to treat that sensitive locations with more respect. So I don't, I feel like I've done the work. I spend a lot of times with time with maps and guidebooks and studying or looking for potential areas of interest. Other people can do the same thing too. So like I've, yeah. And I go ahead. I was going to say it almost, you know, I feel like it would um, take away that sense of awe and wonder and connection from a landscape if you're not doing that sort of background work yourself or discovering it on your own. Like I think part of the excitement of being out there is having that like element of discovery. And if you're just sort of like, well, here's my, here's my checklist and I'm just going to like knock off these locations and not, I think it, it sort of distances that person from connecting with the landscape in some level. Yeah, I I definitely feel like like Instagram is one of the I think is feeding that where it's like I have to see all these places and once I've seen that this place once I've seen these five places in Zion I've seen Zion National Park right <laughs> well we've been hiking there for years now and have barely scratched the surface right <laughs> so like it's I think it's just that mentality I think it is actively damaging to nature. Uh, and that I want as many people as possible to enjoy these places because like how the experience of being in nature has been transformative for me in so many ways. Yeah. I want as many people as possible to have that experience as well, but I want them to go out with a more respectful, like that we're not entitled to use this place however we want for whatever means we want. But like I want the, the place that I visit to be pre- preserved for the next generation. Um, right. and I play a role in making that possible. Yeah. Yeah. So taking responsibility more, much more seriously. Yeah. And seeing yeah. yourself as a steward, like that you right. have some role in stewarding these places, Yeah, not just using them for whatever means you feel is appropriate. Right. I feel like people also don't really think of, they don't see how much their single action can have such a massive, massive ramifications in the world of social media. You don't, until you've experienced it yourself, where you know that you were the the first source of information, you don't realize how quickly things can travel. Like I'm just an obscure nature photographer. And my ebook brought enough people to a single, single place to damage it. Like think of a free Instagram post that is seen by a hundred thousand people. 
Yeah. Yeah. A massive ripple effect. Yeah. Massive. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have experienced that around here too. Like we have, you know, we have to be hiking on trails. Although there's a lot of wilderness areas where you can go off trail, but you know, with the leave no trace principles where you don't want to be, you want to be walking on durable surfaces and that sort of thing. Um, but for the most part, depending on where the location is, you need to be on the trail. And there are times where I'll be on the trail and then I'm like, oh, what's this over here? Like there's clearly another little offshoot of the trail. And sometimes I, you know, my curiosity is like, oh, I wonder what's down there. And then I'll be down there for a little while before I realize this is not the trail. This is just some little side thing that somebody at some point walked off. And now other people have seen those footprints. And so they walked off and then I walked off, you know, and not realizing that like, actually now I'm on private land and I'm not even supposed to be here, (laughs) you know? Um, But it's just amazing how you think, well, it's just me. I'm just one person, but like, say it's muddy and you've left tracks, someone else is going to see that and they're going to get curious. It's, you know, a natural thing to be is curious, I think. And so, but you have to be mindful of it too. So, yeah. Yeah. I I think the, the word you used mindful, like just thinking about your impact and in some cases being willing to change your behavior. Right. Uh, Like one of the things that I've stopped doing here in where we live in Colorado is if anybody else is around, I, I, I don't go cross country because I feel like that's only encouraging other people who, uh, might not have the same understanding of like, there are good, there are better ways to travel cross country. Um, and those people who are seeing me might not have that same education. So then I don't want to have them follow me. So that's, that's one tiny thing that I've stopped doing. Yeah. Um, and of course it's just one, I'm just one person, but if the thousands of members of nature first practice these principles and they communicate actively about them, there's a possibility to change some of the the culture in photography. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think so. I mean, it's like voting, right? Like everybody's vote counts and some people feel like, Oh, well, I'm just one person. My vote doesn't count, but it does. Ultimately it does. Right. So if we all just do a tiny little bit, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, you know, like collectively <laughs> we'll have an impact. <laughs> um, so AI is like a big thing now, especially with like Photoshop and all their latest uh, announcements that they've been making lately. So what role, good or bad, do you think AI will play in how images are processed going forward? And do you think that'll influence outcomes of things like photography competitions or, you know, even like getting paid gigs or grants for projects and things like that? I think it's already changing things tremendously. Um, And I don't, I don't want to judge anybody's motivations or practices. So saying there's a right or a wrong in a creative pursuit. So I want to be consistent with what I said earlier. Uh, But I think that things like just just sky replacement as one example, that's something that that I just don't understand as being appealing because the reason that I go out and photograph is because I like the moment and the experience is absolutely core to my photography So the idea of dropping in a sky that somebody else photographed in a place that I may have never even visited just seems like it takes away all the challenge. It takes away all the personal connection, but I'm also able to travel a lot more than other people are. So I can see the reasons why some people find it appealing uh, Mm -hmm. that they can transform a photograph of a place that meant something to them, but they didn't see under great conditions. Uh, So like, I, I see all sides of it, but I think that the if the goal of photography, if, of nature photography, is to express the thing that you connected with most in the moment, that for people who have that goal, I think being careful about how they use those tools is important. Like the, whatever the Photoshop thing that just came out about um, being able to, uh, what is like enlarge there's some like they're increasing the resolution yeah. so, somehow. I haven't played around with it at yeah. all. So I don't actually know how it works, but I have a, but, a video and a tab <laughs> about yeah. learning, learning a little <laughs> bit more about it. That's something that is a fantastic tool, like a great yeah. application of this technology where it enables you to do something with a photograph that you wouldn't have been able to do with it before. Right. So that's an example of 
a progressive processing technology that I feel like is very, very neutral. I think something like the AI enhancements that you can apply. So if if a com- if a software company is is training its algorithm with ten thousand photos or however many, probably more than that, to come up with these methods of applying processing steps to a photograph based on what they've learned from all these thousands of other photos. That's not what you, that's not necessarily any expression of how you feel about the scene or what your vision is for how you want to communicate. That's right. just applying a, it's like a hive mind of we've taken all these ideas we've we're creating this this conforming process where your photo will look just like every other photo. Like yeah. I don't think that's helpful for creativity. Yeah, no. So that's like a huge continuum. Yeah, yeah. What do you yeah, think about sense. all these things, Brenda? Yeah, I, I am completely on board with you. I think that the sky replacements and, you know, techniques like that are, for me personally, not that fulfilling to do. Like, I'd much rather be there and experience it and make a composition that is a reflection of my experience rather than come up with one after the fact that is what I wished it had been. Um, so I think the challenge is like, okay, well say the sky isn't great or the weather isn't ideal. It's really bland. We'll then come up with a different composition at that time, you know? Um, and I think I like that challenge of trying to figure that out rather than trying to, um, spend more time at my computer to make it look in a, in an ideal scenario that didn't actually exist in my experience. But I think that it can have these unfortunate ramifications because I think people who are not in the depths of photography and understanding how different post-processing techniques can work make it a false perception of what nature really is. And so managing expectations around nature and what to expect when you're out in it or um, photography as an art form, it can get kind of tricky. And so um, it can be both ways. It can be either like, oh my gosh, they think that this really existed. And so now they're going to do everything to get to this location and try to get the same shot only to be disappointed. Or on the other side of the spectrum, I've had friends who are like, just because it's a digital photograph, they think everything's Photoshopped. So they believe nothing. They think it's all baloney. And, you know, and that's frustrating too, because obviously when you're working with raw files, some digital editing is absolutely necessary to be done. And so, you know, you have to say like, well, yes, I did edit it, but it's an actual image, (laughs) you know, it's an actual composition that really occurred. Um, So, yeah, I just think that those lines start to get blurred and it can kind of muddle the messaging around trying to uh, get people to connect with nature more. I think sometimes could be one downside of it. I think that I totally agree with you from how I practice photography. I think though, it's, it's a continuum of like, why do you do this? If you're, if the thing that you love most is bringing a lot of pieces together and creating something, a form of digital art, I still think that's a perfectly valid personal expression. Um, And it's just very different than what I do. So I think having them be compared as the same genre gets a little bit complicated because they're not. Exactly. Um, And then I I also think like as being, I've judged a few competitions where there have been some questionable practices around processing. And like, I can think of, or let's say that you had a photo in front of you where the photographer took took the, the foreground, but they dropped in a sky that was one of the skies that was supplied with software or they bought the sky from some other photographer. Like that seems crazy for something like that to ever win a competition where it includes an element that has no connection whatsoever to the photographer themselves. At least if they're using a sky that they took somewhere else, that's better. But um, (laughs) like the idea that, that competition organizers don't have some rules around like that everything has to stem from you on your vision of nature and your connections with nature. Uh, That's where I think some of the processing things enter some complex ethical dilemmas and like what you were saying around just expectations around nature. Like that we're showing people sometimes things that they aren't going to be able to see for themselves. Right, 
Right. Uh, so that's a very good segue into uh, mentioning the Natural Landscape Photography Awards. And you're one of the judges, I understand. Um, and by the time this episode comes out, um, people will be able to submit uh, photos to the Natural Landscape Photography Awards. So can you tell us a little bit about what you'll be looking for in the submitted images? Yeah, um, I think that the one of the reasons that I was most interested in being part of this photography competition is because I think it's very much in line with my practices as a photographer and the things that resonate most with me in nature, which mm-hmm. is that it's it's not a lot of of um, effects and effort in processing, but it's instead really about the purity of the landscape. And as I mentioned before, like I see validity validity along the entire continuum of ways to express oneself. So I'm not criticizing any approach. It's more just like, I'm excited to be involved with something that is totally in line with how I see the landscape and how I practice. Um, I heavily process my black and white photos, but for my color stuff, I definitely want to stay more grounded in the experience that I directly had. Um, And I think just, I'm hoping that in this competition, smaller scenes will have will stand out a little bit more because they won't be competing against the most dramatic expressions of nature photography that I think you often see in some of those in some other competitions. So I think that that's what I'm going to be looking for is um, intimate connections with the landscape that that say something about the the individual photographer. Mm-hmm. That's another thing that I that I've criticized other competitions in the past for is when you look at the winners, it looks like they all could have been taken by the same photographer or yeah. their nature photography magazines, where if you put the covers in a grid, it looks like they all could be taken by the same photographer. So I think the the thing I'm most looking for is some individual expression and connection that's unique to the photographer. Yeah. 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 That makes sense. And I'm so glad that um, Matt and the others have put that together because it's, um, sort of leveling the playing field a little bit where, you know, you're sort of focusing specifically on one style of photography and instead of having it be broader than that. And, and so people who are trying to express themselves in the photography in this way will get sort of a chance to do that. Um, and so I think that's great. Um, so before we wrap things up, are you up for doing like a a lightning round? Yeah. For sure. Great. Awesome. Okay. So first thing that comes to mind, no, no overthinking. Okay. So what's your, (laughs) what's your favorite subject to photograph? Uh, Desert details. All right. (laughs) What is one thing that never leaves your camera bag? That's not your photography gear. I'm constantly changing out everything in my pack. I would say my coat would be the only thing that ever has a consistent place in my bag. Because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always cold. That is one of my biggest disadvantages as a nature photographer is I am 15 degrees colder than everyone else in a setting. <laughs> so <laughs> even in this, like a warm desert day, I still am wearing five layers. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so you do a lot of hiking and backpacking. So do you have a favorite trail food? Well, that's changed since I don't eat meat anymore. Like I was just exchanging messages about the beef, mountain house beef stroganoff and how I actually crave that sometimes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, so favorite trail food, like the ranch flavored corn nuts is like a, a little treat. Like it's there because they're salty and they're delicious. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, in your opinion, what's the best light to photograph in? The light in front of you. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> You're the first one who said that. I kind of have it as like a trick question because I'm always <laughs> wanting someone to say exactly what you said. So uh, wide angle or telephoto? Telephoto. What focal length? Uh, my I just got a 100 to 500 lens, which is Ooh. amazing with the 1.4 teleconverter. So nice oh that's great I use it at the longest and all the time yeah oh that's awesome (laughs) um final question what does connecting with nature mean to you 
Uh, it means the, I think just the ability to communicate the things that I connect with when I'm out in the natural world and being able to convey the wonder of the places that I see to people who might not be able to visit them on their own. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Well, thank you so much. This has been so much fun. I really appreciate you taking the time to, to chat today and answer all those questions and share with us about your creative process and your ideas on composition and everything. Um, for people who want to check out more of about your educational offerings, your eBooks and your tutorials, I understand you're going to offer the listeners uh, 20% off. Uh, where should they go for that? And what coupon code should they use? Yeah. So we used to be known as naturephotoguides.com. Uh, we are now known as smallsteens.com. So my, okay. um, our website is smallscenes.com and we have a store there that has all sorts of educational products, mostly eBooks, but some video, video tutorials. And then the code OPS 20 will get you 20% off any of those materials. Awesome. Thank you so much. And is that where people can find your, your portfolio as well? Uh Yeah. So since uh, my husband, Ron, his last name, Coscarosa is kind of hard to spell. We tried to come up with something that represented both of our portfolios. And uh, so you can find everything from my work, his work, our store, our blog, some articles about our Airstream travel, all that stuff, all at smallscenes.com. Awesome. Thank you. Well, I'll definitely put those links in the show notes as well as your Instagram and all your other social media sites. I'll stick in the, in the show notes as well for this episode. Sounds great. It was so fantastic to talk with you and connect with you in this way. It was the... I had fun answering your, all of your questions. They were very well, well thought out and went deeper than a lot of interviews do. So that was fun. Awesome. Excellent. Great. I'm so glad to hear that. Thank you so much. All right. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Sarah Marino. And again, you can find out more about her photography, workshops, and other educational offerings on her website at smallscenes.com. And I highly recommend checking out her ebook, 11 Composition Lessons for Photographing Nature Small Scenes to get some valuable insights on how to find and create compelling nature images. Again, thank you, Sarah, for coming on the show. And thank you, listeners, for joining us this week. I appreciate you. And I hope you got a lot of value out of today's episode. You can find the links and other information mentioned today in the show notes at outdoorphotographyschool.com forward slash episode 13. Question, are you loving the Outdoor Photography Podcast? If so, you can help support the show by either leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or by buying me a coffee through the link in the episode description. You can think of buying me a coffee sort of like a tip jar. It's an easy way to say thanks and it helps me produce and continually improve the show. And I greatly appreciate all of you who have already shown your support. Thank you so much. The podcast has been really fun to create, and it's wonderful to know that it's having a positive impact as well. We have several exciting guests coming up on the podcast, including Courtney Harvey, who is a certified wilderness first responder, to talk about how to be safe while exploring the outdoors. And shortly after that, we'll have Charles Bergman on the show to discuss his quest to photograph and document every species of penguin in the world. Don't forget to check out the Natural Landscape Photography Awards at naturallandscapeawards.com and use the coupon code OPS15 to get 15% off your submission. And I'll be back here next week with a Tidbit Tuesday episode where I'll also answer a couple of your submitted questions. If you'd like to submit a question to be answered on Tidbit Tuesday, just click the link in today's episode description or go to outdoorphotographyschool.com forward slash podcast and you will be able to record your short message. Till then, get outside, my friends, and find yourself a little nature. Take care.